Hello, and welcome to Live Like the World is Dying, your podcast for what feels like the end times. I'm your host, Margaret Kiljoy. And this week, I'll be talking to an author and activist and poet and just a historian. I'll be talking to Walida Imarisha, who is, yeah, I'm just, I, I think is absolutely wonderful. And I'll probably come across way too much in this episode. But I'm talking to her because I'm I'm interested in talking about, well, this week is a little bit of a departure from usual, instead of just talking about the end of all things, right? Um, we'll be talking about envisioning better things. And we'll be talking about how important, how necessary it is to be able to imagine better things in order to make those better things real. And so we'll be talking about the importance of fiction, but we'll also be talking about uh, what it means to envision a world, say, for example, without police and prisons, and how we can move towards that. And yeah, I'm just really excited for you all to hear this episode. This podcast is a proud member of the Channel Zero Network of Anarchist Podcasts, and here's a jingle from another show on the network. Da-da-da-da! KiteLine is a weekly 30-minute radio program focusing on issues in the prison system. You'll hear news along with stories from prisoners and former prisoners as well as their loved ones. You'll learn what prison is, how it functions, and how it impacts all of us. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand-to-hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. You can hear us on the Channel Zero Network and find out more at kitelineradio.noblogs.org. Okay, so if you could introduce yourself with your, your name, your pronouns, and then like political or organizational affiliations that kind of concern what you're going to be talking about, or maybe like the the books that you've written that are about what we're going to be talking about. Sure. My name is Walida Imarisha. She and her pronouns. I am a writer and an educator. I have done a lot of work on science fiction and social change, culminating in co-editing Octavia's Brood, science fiction stories from social justice movements. I've also written the creative nonfiction book, Angels with Dirty Faces, Three Stories of Crime, Prison, and Redemption. Oh, the fact... I've I've been telling people for years that my favorite book against um, prison is Angels with Dirty Faces, and I actually have a really hard time reading nonfiction, which is kind of embarrassing because I'm an, I'm an author. Um, and the fact that you describe it as creative nonfiction really helps explain <laughs> part of why. <laughs> um, for anyone who hasn't read it yet, Angels with Dirty Faces is like um, it's it's talking about prisons, but it's talking about prisons from the point of view of like several specific people who are in prison and, and um, well, your interactions with them. Um, so the reason I have you on this like community and, and individual preparation podcast is uh, the important, I, I kind of want to talk to you about the importance of actually like envisioning something better. Mm-hmm. And because it's, it's this, kind of cliche that like we know what we're against but do we know what we're for and sometimes i kind of hate when people ask actually i almost always hate when people ask that because my argument is that if you're being hit with a baseball bat you don't actually have to articulate what you would like society be be like without someone hitting you with a baseball bat before you can get someone to stop hitting you with a baseball bat um but yet at the same time i do personally want a much better society and and i know that you've done this work also yeah with octavia's brood which is um just uh labeled visionary fiction is that right 
Um, could you talk about visionary fiction and could you talk about what draws you to that and what draws you to painting better worlds and resistance? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I feel, I agree with you and I think it's a, you know, it's a yes, it's yes. And, and so um, I also think it's really important who's asking these questions, right? Are we asking these questions of each other or people from outside being like, well, what do you want then? Mm-hmm. You're like, I don't really owe you anything if you're coming with that tone. So, <laughs> um, you know, for, for me, uh, visionary fiction, I started using that term to refer to the intersection of science fiction or imaginative fiction, fantastical art and social change. It's deeply steeped in, uh, you know, radical organizing in thinking and building liberated futures. Mm -hmm. It's not a utopian project. It's really more about how can we imagine the futures we want Mm -hmm. to figure out new ways to, to build them into existence. So we're, we're never going to get to those perfect futures because as science fiction writer Octavia E. Butler said, we're not going to have a utopia until we have a few perfect humans. And that seems unlikely. So <laughs> we, won't, <laughs> we won't reach utopia, but I think the, the, the practice of utopia is the useful one. And really, I mean, that is, that is what organizing is, is mm-hmm. thinking about, this world around us and how we actually want it to be. And, you know, that's a, that's a foundation of Octavia's brood, which I co-edited with uh, Adrian Murray Brown. Mm -hmm. The premise is all organizing is science fiction. And we believe that anytime you imagine a world without the ills we fight against, without borders, without prisons, without police, um, that is science fiction because we haven't seen that world, but we can't build what we can't imagine. And so Octavia's Brood is fantastical writing, visionary fiction, specifically written by organizers, activists, and change makers, the folks who are, you know, in the world trying to make it a better place. And I think that intersection of uh, imaginative spaces and uh, social change is not just useful, but it's, it's absolutely imperative for us to build something other than this world around us. No, that makes sense. Um, I really like the the quote that you just had of, we can't build what we can't imagine that. I don't know. I, I like that a lot. It ties into a lot of what I, what I think about with my own writing. Um, and uh, so there's a weird tangent, but okay. So like, so you're saying it's not a utopian project, right? Even though it's sort of in some ways about envisioning utopia and utopia has this like really mixed, um, uh, <laughs> reputation, right? Yeah. Um, and I think some of your work, you've talked about how Oregon was uh, developed as a white utopia, for example. Um, yes. And, you know, I remember doing a, a talk. I've, I think I've even said this on the podcast before. I'm not sure. I was doing a talk about A Country of Ghosts, uh, an anarchist utopian novel that I wrote. And and I was doing it at a Tallahoogan, um Indigenous Info Shop, and someone who was there was like, yeah, you know that um, white people with utopian ideas destroyed everything, right? And I was like, yeah, no, you're you're just right. I don't have a counter argument. Like, you're just correct. Like, and so I, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about about that, about like the idea, maybe the difference between like utopia 
as a thing that you're specifically trying to create versus like utopia as like a direction to walk or something like that? I don't know. I don't know how to phrase this. No, I think that's, I think that's a really useful um, differentiation. I think the, the idea, the, the sort of uh, arrogance and audacity to think that we could create a perfect society mm-hmm. um, I think is, is rooted in, you know, everything that is against what we are wanting to build. It's, you know, it, it does result in, um, you know, in, in these projects. I mean, you know, Adrian uh, often quotes um, Terry Marshall talking about, you know, that we are in an imagination battle, that we are living in mm-hmm. someone else's, specifically as Black people, living in other people's imaginations. And this is the result of that, in, of us, uh, you know, the, the world being manifested through this white supremacist imagination. And I, I do think it's important to talk about utopias because I mean, so much of the 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 goal of white supremacist heteropatriarchal, you know, capitalism has been to create their vision of utopia and to, in, you know, impress upon it, impress it upon the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. And so, I think it's important to talk about that as utopia because it it complicates the notion of utopia as you're talking about. Mm-hmm. But I do think the the sort of thought exercise of utopia is u- useful. I, I often quote um, uh, Eduardo Gaiano uh, uh, and his quote of saying, um, what is the purpose of utopia then? It is to cause us to advance. Yeah. And I think, <laughs> yeah, I think if we frame it in that way, uh, it becomes incredibly useful mm-hmm. because as a as as a thought experiment to me it it roots very much in you know in Ursula K Le Guin's the dispossessed mm-hmm. um, the subtitle of which is is an ambiguous utopia uh, the the foundation of that idea is the, these folks think they have built the perfect you know anarchist society and then realize you know the liberation we want is not a destination. And if we ever think we have reached perfection, that is the very moment that we begin to replicate the very systems of dystopian domination that we fought and gave our lives for. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's, it's important to continually think of this as, you know, as a process and a practice rather than a destination um, and to continually get to ask the question, what is our ideal world, knowing that we won't reach it, but we will continually not only better ourselves and society, but we will um, create space to reimagine what we consider to be utopia. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're all growing. I'm growing. We're all messing up every day. We're all learning how to do better every day, hopefully. Um, <laughs> and, you know, so to, to, to imagine that the destination that we set at some fixed point in the past is the destination we want to go to today mm-hmm. is it actually does a disservice to to ourselves because it stops us from being able to grow and to continue to imagine beyond what we're told is possible. Wait, I thought we were just following the blueprints that Bakunin laid out. Is that not? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like, um, yeah, no, I, I, I really like that. I really like this idea that, um, I mean, for me, it's one of the reasons why, you know, personally I'm an anarchist, but I, I just in general anti-authoritarianism, um, 
appeals to me is because to me, it's this, it's a little bit clearer to say like, no, 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 there's not a perfect, there's not a like, a system that you create and then enforce on everyone. You know, it's a, instead it's a, it's always going to be messy. It's always going to be this, um, this process. Um, yeah. And well, I mean, it, it's re- rebelling against the tyranny, even of our past selves, really. Right. Like, yeah. I mean, the plan that I laid out for myself when I was 20, you mm-hmm. know, is, is certainly not the plan, you know, and, and even <laughs> if the, the destination of this, even if I'm heading the same way on the horizon, Certainly the lessons that I've learned along the way have deeply impacted, shifted and changed. And if I don't mm-hmm. allow myself the space to do that, then I've, I've locked myself into a moment that has then become just my life. Yeah. But we do that with our movements every day. I like this idea. So that, cause it's like, we need the plans we just to, to even think of it like in terms of the individual, like you're saying, like when the plan of what you were going to do when you were 20, it's like we always need to have these plans so that we can do anything, right? Otherwise, like if I didn't have an idea of like what I wanted to be and what I wanted to do, I, I wouldn't make any progress. But yeah, no, that makes sense to be able to like completely readdress it at any point. Well, and just recognize that, you know, I mean, that the world is so much larger than we imagine that the the sky seems vast and one point on the horizon that seems like the end point when we reach it we recognize oh there's there is a whole infinity of sky beyond that so why would we just stop when we've reached that point if our goal was to just continue exploring and seeing and experience and doing as much as possible that's so good I like, <laughs> I love all this shit so much. Um, <laughs> okay, so, so why then fiction? Why um, choosing to express that specifically through fiction as, as you all did with um, Octavia's Brood? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I think again, for me, um, visionary fiction is about creating possibilities and um, as many entry points. So, you know, I think fiction is one way to do it. I think you can do it in any genre and whatever messy intersections between genres, the infinite intersections of, of mm-hmm. limitations of genre. <laughs> uh, but, you know, we specifically, I think, well, a, Adrian and myself are both nerds and mm-hmm. have been for our whole lives. So science fiction and fantasy was something that was integral to our development of imagination. Uh, I mean, to this day, I process things through, you know, science fiction or fantasy, whether they're movement things or my own mm-hmm. emotions. I'm like, oh my gosh, it's like we just blew up the Death Star. Or like, <laughs> I feel like we're at Helm's Deep and they're at the gate, you know, or we're yeah. in the mines of Moria, you know? And uh, so, um, you know, so I, I think there's that piece. But I, I think for me, what, you know, has been what we've believed fundamentally what we saw with the stories in Octavia's Brood and what we've seen in the five years since Octavia's Brood has come out is, uh, you know, imaginative spaces like science fiction not only allow us to throw out everything we've been told is possible, they demand it of us. And folks come into that space being ready and open for anything. Mm -hmm. You know, again, to quote Octavia E. Butler, which I do a lot, she says, you know, there are no borders or boundaries around science fiction Mm -hmm. as a genre that 
we can build them and people have, but they're not there naturally. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that piece is, is so important because people will enter into science fiction ready for anything. Are there talking clouds? I'm here for it, <laughs> right? Uh-huh. Is this a, an empire set 5,000 years in the future? Sure. Are we on in another multiverse where there are multiple uses and it's being told in a non-linear fragmented story arc? Yes, let's do this. Like folks come in open to any story you want to tell them. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that that openness is fundamentally important because we have to step out beyond the boundaries of what we're told is possible. Yeah. We have to step outside the stories we already know or we think we know. Um, because if we stick with the stories that feel familiar, then we just end up replicating the same stories over and over again. We have to create spaces. And again, you know, I mean, I, I have believed in, you know, uh, radical politics and liberation and uh, the abolition of police and prisons for decades. Mm -hmm. And yet, you know, folks often think of that as, as, complete fantasy yeah um, up until very recently in the mainstream so <laughs> isn't you know, that wild i think yeah it's very wild so i you know i think you know but if but are, are more than willing to explore these issues around power dynamics around race around hierarchy around you know governance around restructuring societies Mm -hmm. if it is set in you know a fantasy world with elves if it is set on another (laughs) planet if it Mm -hmm. involves green people even if it's an alternative uh, you know historical timeline folks are like oh all right sure yeah all right let's do that that's acceptable oh like fire Um, on the mountain kind of you know like exactly yeah yeah like that, you know, if you just give them a plausible, like, hey, here's a plausible turn that could have happened in history. And then we went off in a completely different way. And folks mm-hmm. are like, all right, I'm here for it. Um, and so, <laughs> you know, how do we create spaces that allow folks to imagine? And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I quote, um, you know, the transformative justice, uh, you know, amazing organizer and, and thinker, Mariam Kaba a lot, who said that hope is a discipline. And I believe imagination is a practice mm-hmm. and this society has worked to limit and control our imaginations. And so we have to continually practice, well, what exists beyond what we're being told is possible. And that's for all of us. That's for myself as well. Even as someone who you know tries to do this work every day, mm-hmm. I have to remind myself, okay, are you running up against external limits that have been set for you by someone else? And you are just accepting them as the boundaries of, of the real (laughs) to quote the matrix, right? Like what exists beyond this? Because there has to be something we live in a, in an infinite universe. So something has to exist beyond the boundaries of everything we're being told. And if I can't imagine it, then that's a place I need to practice imagining. No, that makes sense. Like one of the things that I often run into that's often frustrating is like sometimes the people I care about who maybe are more liberal than me, um, you know, I'm trying to explain while being like, so we have to change everything about our society in order to not all die because of climate change, right? And they'll be like, yes. And I'll be like, is the state going to do that? No. So what are the options? I guess we all die. And I'm like, that's not the that's not where I was trying to go with that. Um, you know, it's like, there's this, 
this failure of imagination um, and I, I, I'm not trying to be like, and they're idiots and I know everything, you know, I'm certain there's all kinds of stuff that I'm not imagining that I should be able to imagine, but we need to be able to imagine ourselves having power, you know, um, ourselves being able to actually enact change, even if like, you know, Congress won't or whatever. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, for me, you know, I, I'm, I'm also a historian and I, I feel very thankful that I have sort of embodied, you know, these different time periods because it allows mm-hmm. me to look back on the past and to analyze it. And then, you know, to be able to really talk about the future, not as predictions, but as certainties, as futuristic certainties. Mm-hmm. Because the reality is, right, when we study history, we know that again and again, folks are told the change you want is impossible. It will never happen. So you should just accept this reform. You are ridiculous. And if you don't take this reform, you're going to get nothing. So, you know, take it now or it's going to go away. And when people reject that and when they mobilize together and when they imagine what they're being told is fantasy and then do the work to build it into reality, Mm -hmm. they change the world again and again and again. And it's important to have those kind of historical examples. And that's why, you know, I think that's part of why we're sold this lie of linear time so that we don't see the past as something that can be helpful to us in building the future, except as sort of a cautionary tale. We hear about the past in the negative, but we don't hear about the past as something that can, you know, actively help us to build the futures we want, or that is in current conversation with us. And so I, I feel, you know, very thankful to to also be a historian as well as a futurist and mm-hmm. feel like when I am feeling uncertain about these futures, when I'm like, is this even possible? Should we just take it feels like we're fighting against, you know, the biggest Leviathan ever? Mm-hmm. Like, how can we possibly win? Then I can sit back and go through my mind and be like, well, they won here and here and here and here and here against Leviathans that seemed insurmountable. And like that, we are part of that legacy and that work, that project, that ongoing um, imaginative project that has changed everything and with certainty will change everything. It's not a question of, right? It's not a question Mm -hmm. of if, it's a question of when. Well, and I feel like the summer was this moment of, yeah. Even, you know, I've been involved in, you know, radical politics for a while now, and I still had a really hard time imagining anything like this summer happening. Yeah. And the idea, like, you know, it's kind of like, oh, the first world doesn't revolt, you know, or especially the United States doesn't revolt. And you're like, oh, it, it apparently it does. Um, and once we're able to start saying, like, actually, we can we can do for ourselves then like, I mean, it can go terribly. Right. (laughs) Um, But at least it, it, it opens up opportunity. Um, I liked, I liked uh, you and I were on a panel earlier this summer or spring or sometime (laughs) during the infinite time period that was 2020. When was that? Was that the, it was before the uprising, right? 
Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so we were at a panel and we were talking about the the possibilities of radical fiction. Yeah. And I, I, I don't remember which one of us like brought it up, but we both kind of had, had this moment of like kind of just being like, but we do have to move from fiction towards like yeah. <laughs> getting our hands dirty, you know, yeah. like, like fiction is an important part of prison abolition of like, you know, expanding the imagination is important, but at some point we have to like let the prisoners go in a possibly direct way, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess I wanted to talk to you about because, okay. So the, the way that you talk about a world without prisons, and this actually ties into what you're saying, right? You're saying about like how history, because like, I mean, obviously we've always had police and we've always had prisons and every society that has ever functioned and on earth has always had, you know, um, prisons and stuff, except that's like completely untrue. And it seems like most societies, I don't know if most societies, a large number of societies have certainly done without police and prisons. And I was wondering if you wanted to talk about either your vision of prison abolition or how that ties into history or is a big open-ended question. I'll just end it there. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot to say. I think, you know, I mean, I think the, that piece is incredibly important, right? That when you look at the history of communities and societies, uh, the specific manifestation of prison is, you know, a very small blip on that. Um, And I think, you know, it's a useful example to show us how things that are relatively new society spends from the minute we get here, every moment telling us that our lives could not function or exist without these things, that there is nothing beyond the event horizon of prisons. Um, And society has to spend all of its time telling us that because it is so fundamentally untrue. Mm -hmm. Uh, The reality again you know, as you said, for good or for ill, it's not, you know, it's not saying everybody who didn't have prisons was great, <laughs> but yeah. the, the, the manifestation of prisons themselves or police in their current uh, in, in incarnation um, is, you know, is relatively new. And so, you know, I think it's important to look back historically on that. I also think, you know, what is also useful is to see the ways that systems of oppression you know, mutate and morph based on the organizing and demands of, you know, of folks trying to create radical change. Okay. Because um, that's part of how we got the prison system is by Black folks demanding an end to, uh, you know, the the system of chattel slavery, mm-hmm. and then we get prisons and police. Um, And that is, you know, is a direct response and outcome. And so I I think that piece is important because the reality is we have to say when we we are talking about a world without prisons, we're talking about a world with that is not rooted in a carceral, punitive, um, controlling mentality. Because if we are only talking about physical prisons, then I can very easily imagine a world without prisons because of the increase expansion of the surveillance state which is happening right now and right. the the immense growth of electronic electronic mo- monitoring versus uh sending people to physical prisons um which just moves prisons into our our communities and there's an amazing book uh that I'm reading right now prison by another name 
uh, by uh, Maya Schwerner and uh, Victoria Law that talks about that. So we have to be really um, thoughtful and recognize that that's why that long-term vision is so important. Mm -hmm. Because if we are just focused on the current manifestation of an oppressive institution, then we can, you know, kind of be like, I guess we won. Mm -hmm. Um, But the reality is, we're not, you know, we're not looking for just an absence of physical prisons. We're looking for the institution of, of justice, of accountability, Mm -hmm. of wholeness, of caring and nurturing. Um, And we have many examples of that historically, currently, and futuristically that we can be drawing on. But I, I do think it's, it's really important when we're talking about prison abolition to make sure that we're rooting in a recognition that the, the current manifestation of prison and police, especially with the you know incredible advances in technology, they may not look the same. So we have to talk about the underlying principles. Otherwise, um, we've just you know allowed the system to mutate again. Yeah. God, that'd be that must have been so depressing to be like, we have, you know, we we did it. We have abolition, and then you're like, oh, fuck. I don't know. It just. What am I trying to say? Like, it must just be so depressing to to be part of that happening, right? To to win not just like a a small thing, but to win this like like if we abolished prisons, and then yeah, we just end up with more carceral shit and some other fucking name um, and some more white supremacist shit and like. It's depressing how easy it is to imagine that. It's actually, um, <laughs> sorry, I got kind of lost thinking about how dystopian that can get. Um, I mean, I think, you know, I think it's, tr- I think, I mean, I also think the way we think about a win is really important, mm-hmm. right? Because I think also the way that, you know, systems of power function is to, you know, is through hierarchy and dichotomy. Mm-hmm. And the idea of winning, you, you know, it's kind of the, <laughs> the Ricky Bobby from Talladega Nights. If you're not first or last, right? <laughs> yeah. Never actually thought I would quote Talladega Nights <laughs> in public fashion, but there it is. Um, uh-huh. You know, but that I mean that that's that is hierarchy and dichotomy, right? Mm-hmm. If you don't win, who cares? You're not. So I, I I just think it's important for us to be defining our wins because and and to seeing the nuances, to see the yes and like mm-hmm. the the creation and the institution of the carceral, you know, prison system as a response to, you know, black liberation is horrific. Mm -hmm. And black folks change the entire world Mm -hmm. by ending the, you know, the institution of chattel slavery um, and creating space for themselves to continue fighting and imagining and building. And both of those are true. And so, I, th- I just think it's important to see, that's why it's important to see this as a, you know, as a, as a process and a practice rather than, uh, you know, a short term kind of goal, because, you know, the reality is, especially dealing with the, you know, the, the American settler experiment, mm-hmm. it is perhaps the most responsive and, you know, uh, adaptive oppressive system that has existed its ability to take in critique and uh you know give you something that looks like change while allowing the the 
systems to continue functioning is, you know, it's, it's mind boggling. So I think, again, <clears throat> we have to be celebrating and recognizing the ways that we are, you know, advancing and creating and building just futures while being vigilant about the machinations of this destructive system. Yeah. Sorry, it's like everything you say, I'm like, it's like, it's stuff that I've been thinking about, but it's like put together a little bit more concretely. So I'm like, I'm trying to answer in this very natural way. And instead I'm like, no, that sounds true. Like, <laughs> um, there's a there's a quote. Um, I think it's George Jackson. You know, I don't care how long I live. Over this, I have no control. But I do care about what kind of life I live, and I can control this. I may not live, but another five minutes. But it will be five minutes, definitely on my terms. And and there's this like. One of the things that I try and remember myself, and I'm very bad at because I can be very like kind of goal oriented, right? Because I want to die peacefully in my bed, living in a society without hierarchy. That has been my plan for a very long time. Um, but like, that is not the most likely thing for me to do. And so in some ways that thinking about the process, like rebellion as process um, appeals to me a lot because then it's like, okay, in some ways, winning to, to fight is to win, right? Which is sort of a like, it's the opposite of the Telugu Knights. It's the like, no, 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 you ran the race, you're good, you know? Um, even if you don't win first place, you die in some of these circumstances. But it's it's still, I don't know, still better to, to fight sometimes, I think. Um, yeah, and I, I mean, you know, <clears throat> I think George Jackson is an incredible example of someone who is organizing in the most horrific of conditions who had, who, you know, was told he would die in prison because of his politics, who mm -hmm. had, you know, been incarcerated at such a young age and was told, you know, because you have transformed yourself and you believe in the liberation of people, you know, oppressed people everywhere, you will die here. And George Jackson did die in prison yeah. and his name is, has been intoned by every prison organizing and every prison uprising and every prison strike that I have heard of uh, since his death for, you know, almost 50 years. Yeah. And I think that is incredibly important to recognize that um, he didn't just decide the next five minutes. He's decided half of a century um, and his example, I mean, I, you know, I've seen videos of white men in Texas who are on death row, who are staging a protest because a black man is being executed and they mm -hmm. are being pepper sprayed and beaten by the SWAT team of guards that come in and they intone George Jackson's name. And the fact that his reach in, in, you know, and that was in the 2000s yeah. and that white folks in prison yeah like a white man in, on texas death row yeah. is being brutalized in solidarity with another black man and in honor of george jackson yeah uh, i think it's important to 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 see that and to frame that because i think otherwise then you know it's the that's that's the danger of the notion of linear time right is that you just struggle and it's and then you're dead and that's mm -hmm. it and you just hope that things get better. But 
again, there's a historical certainty we can draw on Mm -hmm. that like George Jackson studied history and he knew acting with principle, acting with, with value and acting courageously and for liberation may mean I don't live a long time, but it becomes a futuristic certainty that this, that I will have an impact on this struggle. Yeah. And so I, you know, I, you know, I would never presume (laughs) to (laughs) imagine that I have, you know, have or will suffer like George Jackson has suffered. Yeah. Um, But I think it's incredibly important for us to, to be thinking about, about that piece as this, this work is something that is organic and alive Mm -hmm. and we are part of it. And we, we are connected to it. We are an ecosystem of liberation. And so George Jackson is not gone because he's part of this ecosystem. And he is in fact feeding the roots of these current movements that are doing the things that he did and, and more. Yeah. Yeah. It makes me think about, um, well, some of the work that's happening with Octavia Butler's work, you know, and it's, it's funny because I, I feel like probably the single, the novel that I talk about the most on this show, if there's like one book that people should go read, it's, well, it's two books really is um, Parable of the Sower and Parable of the Talents by Octavia Butler, because it's, it's one, it's the most creepily prescient, is prescient the right word? Okay. Um, I'll leave that in so people know that I'm not very good at my job of writing. Um, you know, it's, it's no, I've, I've, I've done that. Honestly, just uh-huh. side note, I've done that same thing. I went online to figure out how to pronounce it because I'd only read the book, the word. I'd never. Yeah, pres- totally. And I was like, prescient, prescient, yeah. prescient, prescient. Yeah. And they have different pronunciations online. Oh, of course they do. So, yeah. I was like, I don't. So I'm just this prophetic book. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's prophetic. It's it's creepily prophetic. It makes me yeah. assume that I am going to spend at some point the next chunk of my life walking north in California and like settling in the redwoods because everything else about the book is so completely dead on that I just now assume that that is going to be my life. Um, and it will be everyone's life. Everyone will be walking north on the I-5. And I haven't read this book in a while. I actually don't. I assume it's the I-5 they walk on. Um, but, but you know, the the point of the book and the point of Earthseed and about, like, this idea of, like, God has changed and, and the, the sort of religion that's um, woven throughout the book also seems to be kind of, like, having more of its day now than it was Maybe than it was then. I'm I'm not sure. I wasn't super plugged into science fiction at the the time the books were written, um, but yeah, I mean, it just got on the New York Times bestseller list for the first time, <clears throat> fourteen years after Octavia died. So whoa, that's. Yeah. I mean it. It just makes sense. There's no. Yeah. Everyone is like it's. I mean, for anyone who hasn't read it yet, it's like literally about some guy running on the platform of make America great again, who oversees a slow decline into um, the apocalypse. And um, yeah, I don't know. Um, But it's, 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 uh, it's got that hope as discipline as, well, I guess you didn't put it, you quoted someone else as putting it, but um, so for anyone who's, who's listening, who's like, well, if not prisons, then what? Right. Um, 
<laughs> what do we do instead of prisons? Like for people who have a hard time conceiving of a world without this carceral system where people go to time out for 50 years or whatever. Um, what do you, what do you say in, to that kind of level of lack of imagination? Let's say. I mean, I'd say first it's, it's, I don't know that it's a lack of imagination because again, I think everything in society has worked to make us believe that there are no other options that are viable beyond this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I understand you know, folks struggling because this system has spent your entire existence telling you that, you know, without, without police, without prisons, you know, he'll get up, we'll all get up. It'll be anarchy. (laughs) (laughs) Quote the breakfast club, which again, I'm on a roll today. um, Well, Tallahoga Nights has the anarchy quote. Isn't that the book where the kids run around the movie where the kids run around go anarchy. anarchy. I don't know what it is, but I love it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. That's one of my favorite samples. Anyway, sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. We could have a whole podcast just about Talladega Nights. Yeah, totally. <laughs> um, you know, yeah. So I think um, it's it's understandable. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, to me, and, and part of the reason that I wrote um, Angels with Dirty Faces was first to recognize that, you know, the stories we tell dictate the limits of our imagination. And so I felt like to move people to even being open to talking about abolition, I needed to tell different stories or at least tell the same stories in, in, in different ways or from different perspectives. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I'm not trying to, pretend like I'm doing something other people have not done. But I wanted to add to the literature that and the the, the thought and the, the storytelling that provides pictures of folks who have done harm. And, and mm-hmm. my book focuses on people who have done harm. I think especially at the time I began it, which um, was 10 years before it was published in 2016, a lot of the focus around abolition was around nonviolent offenses and especially around nonviolent drug offenses, mm-hmm. which is, you know, incredibly important. But as someone who had worked with folks who were incarcerated, um, who, you know, uh, my adopted brother was at the time was incarcerated. Um, you know, I was like, we have to, to challenge this system as a whole. We have to also talk about people who do harm. And what happens when folks do harm to one another and how do we hold folks accountable and how do we hold the sometimes, you know, atrocities that people commit against each other while still holding the humanity of everyone involved. Mm -hmm. And I felt like having done work around prison abolition for years, I learned very quickly, you know, presenting facts and statistics is not going to help mm-hmm. because folks have embedded frames. And every time I, I presented, I did a, I did a project where I um, was part of a, a, a public scholar program. And my go- my, my project was to create conversations around alternatives to prisons. Mm-hmm. So I started by doing a short quiz because I was like, let's challenge what people think they know about prisons. And so I, I would say, you know, 
um, who who is you know what what percentage of folks of color are incarcerated? You know what percentage of people incarcerated are people of color? Mm-hmm. And you know I would then I would say the majority are people of color. And then folks are like, well, that's because they commit the most crimes. And I was mm-hmm. like, oh. And then I would I, mm-hmm. so I added another question that was about you know what percentage of folks who are incarcerated? You know, and then mm-hmm. people are like, well, that's because they commit worse crimes. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> I just kept adding more statistical facts to try and disrupt this narrative and folks specifically white folks kept rejecting it not even necessarily i mean some people rejected it very consciously and blatantly Mm -hmm. and and very racistly (laughs) but a lot of folks were rejecting it even just kind of unconsciously because they're like well that can't be true because that's not the story that i've been told my whole life right and so something must be wrong with this with this statistic you're giving me because it doesn't fit into my understanding of the world that is not rooted in fact, it's rooted in stories. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think to me, that's why it's so important. You know, storytellers are incredibly important because we are the folks who open up the space for then other pieces to enter in. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I, I think, again, it's a yes and. We absolutely need statistics and facts and case studies and histories and concrete examples. Um, but I think that really it's it's storytelling that can be that subversive disruption that allow folks to say, if this is a story and I've never heard this story before, this... Di- like disrupts the story I've thought was true my whole life. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? And that question, what does that mean? I think is that space that then allows us to say, Hey, that's great. Let's have a conversation about what that means. No, I love that. One of the things he, uh, a sentence he used or a phrase he used somewhere in there was embedded frames. Right. And, um, the, the one therapy that I like, swear by is is cognitive behavioral therapy right and it talks about frames a lot and it talks about how we have these um yeah we have these frames we have these ways of thinking and how those can often be they can be useful but they can be damaging right and and learning to change um the way that you think about things can be a conscious practice and um you know of like building different neural paths instead of the paths that you would normally take right um in order to deal with anxiety or whatever. Right. But it's sort of interesting to imagine using that to deal with like racism um, rather than just like being like, Hey, don't be racist. Hey, don't be racist or whatever. I I first encountered that idea through this essay called loot or find fact or frame. Mm -hmm. That was about the, the media portrayal of black people during hurricane Katrina Mm -hmm. and the ways that originally the, the unnatural disaster of the government response to Mm -hmm. Black people in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, where people were literally being abandoned to die, was so, it was such a, a, a horrific story that, that those facts disrupted the sort of general narrative of, of Black criminalization. Mm-hmm. But that because there was no further follow-up, that the frame of Black criminality reasserted itself very quickly. And we saw you know, these completely untrue stories of black people shooting at Mm -hmm. helicopters coming to save them, or, you know, the police chief crying and saying they're raping babies in the Superdome, Uh none of which was true. And yet 
it didn't matter that it wasn't true because it fit the frame. Mm-hmm. And the, the line that the author said that has always stuck with me is frame trumps fact, mm-hmm. frame trumps fact. And so that was very impactful to me. And so I said, how do we begin? If fact is not the thing that will people, it, you know, again, people throw it out because they don't even know the frame is there. Mm-hmm. So how do we begin to make people see the frame? And I think it is by telling different stories um, and different kinds of stories. And so, you know, that's part of why I um, I wanted to tell the story of the angels with dirty faces. Um, this is a really long answer to your question of what. No, no, it's great. Other than prisons, um, <clears throat> but you know, I think it's important because the other thing, the other frame we have to address, we have to make visible and address, mm-hmm. is the frame that. Prisons and police are about keeping us safe. Mm -hmm. That is a frame. And every fact and statistic and example and case study we put into it gets discarded because the frame is not shifting. The reality is prisons and police make us all less safe and they cause more harm. Their goal is not safety. Their goal is control and containment and exploitation of potentially rebellious communities. Yeah. And that is true historically and it's true currently. So for me, even beginning to answer, and that's why this question, this answer is so long (laughs) is, you know, beginning to answer the question, what else instead of prisons or police, we have to first deal with the fact that prisons and police don't make us more safe. They make us less safe. Yeah. So literally, I mean, the short answer is like literally almost anything else. <laughs> yeah, totally. Right? There was that um, court... <laughs> go ahead, sorry. No, no, go ahead. There was that court case, and I, I I don't have it in front of me or anything, but there's this court case where like like someone got, I, I think maybe stabbed in front of the police or whatever, and the police didn't do anything because they were like, whoa, that guy has a knife. I don't want to go near the guy with the knife. And... And then later, the guy who got stabbed or something sued the cops and was like, don't you have a job? Isn't your job, like, stop knife-wielding guys? And the the judge, like, came down and was like, no, it is it is literally not the job of police to keep people safe. Mm-hmm. That is not right. their job. And it was just like, and that was like a good, like, um, I mean, that happened after I kind of already had my <laughs> current frame that obviously has no flaws um, about how society works. But it still was like a nice, like it, it really pinned it in for me that it was like, oh, no, no, no. The thing that they pretend to do, they don't even do. Right. Um, yeah. For anyone. Exactly. Yeah. Not only do they not do that, but it makes us all less safe. And yeah. so I think once we separate that out, and that's part of why I try to be very conscious about, you know, the difference in language between, you know, talking about crime mm-hmm. or talking about harm. I think mm-hmm. it's important to know that the idea of crime is a social construct, mm-hmm. right? It's about control and it's about maintaining the status quo. Because mm-hmm. when you look back on the things that were crimes, that who is criminalized, who is targeted, it's always folks who are marginalized and oppressed. It's always people on the outside, right? And um, so harm doesn't change, right? Like the fact is we all do harm and we all need to develop the ability to be accountable, to take responsibility, to make amends and to change behavior in the future. Mm -hmm. And so 
you know, when I talk about harm, I separate it out from the the prison system and police, Mm -hmm. because the only thing that police and prison systems do is cause more harm. Their their goal is not to address harm. And we can look at that across the board. So, you know, I think it's it's important to separate those out because then you you can look at how harm has happened uh, or the ways that harm has been prevented from happening. And we see that, you know, there again are countless examples historically, you know, presently and futuristically of folks creating systems rooted in community about addressing harm, about finding ways to, uh, you know, challenge that harm um, and to hold people accountable. Mm-hmm. Um, and then to that focus on making the communities safer and more whole rather than you know, a carceral mentality, which rips apart not just individual lives, families, communities, but society as a whole. And so I, you know, I think it's, there's, there are many examples that that can be had around that. But I think before we can even really get to understanding those examples, we have to challenge these frames that mm-hmm. we have around the, the purpose of police and prisons and the function that they serve. Do you think that these frames, okay, I'm of two minds about the following idea. One is that sometimes these frames actually change better in like dramatic short moments. And then the other is that maybe it takes a lifetime to change these frames. And both of those somehow seem to like not even contradict each other. They just both seem true to me. Um, because I, I wonder about, you brought up Hurricane Katrina, right? And and someone that I interviewed a while ago who was talking about how um, during moments of crisis, we have these opportunities to um, reshape society, right? And and also that one of the things that we talk about sometimes on the show is that like during disasters, like people tend to help each other out as like that's what disaster studies tends to show until power structures try to change that. And usually it's the old power structure reasserting itself and doing so violently. And like Katrina, it would be like shooting looters and you can't see me, but I'm doing, well, you can see me, but the audience can't see me. I'm doing air quotes. Um, you know, shooting people who are going out and doing the thing that every disaster movie says you should do, which is go out and find food and, you know, bring it back to people who can't go get it. Um, and and so the, the the existing system reasserts itself through through force, right? And they don't do it through any semblance of law. They don't do it through any, like, it's not legal to shoot people for stealing, right? But they don't fucking care. Um and I, I think it's a really interesting parallel to how you're talking about the frame reasserting itself and how in the exact same situation, the frame reasserted itself of like black people are bad and dangerous and criminal. Right. And that allowed, I think the, um, allowed the state to assert itself in the violent. Well, they would do it anyway, but it certainly helped them assert themselves in like as a violent occupying force. How do you stop the frame from reasserting itself? And how do you leverage crisis into having a better society? It's a nice, simple question. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <clears throat> you know, I think it's, it, it is, it's like, again, it's yes and, mm-hmm. right? Like, I, I really, especially, I feel like in these, in this decade that has been 2020, um, <laughs> you know, like, you know, I've really like rooted in this notion of of quantum organizing and the idea that, you know, we live in a quantum universe, um, you know, things are exist in multiplicities at once, things exist in, you know, 
multiple multiple places, quantum entanglement, the idea that something you do affects a particle at the same time that's so far away from you, but mm-hmm. you're intertwined. Like all of these principles feel like I've just been really like, yes, oh my God. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if those things are true in the universe and they are true in in our organizing, you know, in, in the ways that these systems operate, then they are true in our in our organizing and response. And so you know, I just say that to say, I think it's, you know, yes. And like things can take a lifetime and they can happen in a moment mm-hmm. and all of those are, and we can be pulling the futures that we want into the present at the same time. Like all of those can be true yeah. and they're not in contradiction. They're actually in communion with one another. And so, you know, uh, but I do think that the reality I mean, thinking about this moment that we're in right now is incredibly important because I think, the work of, you know, of abolitionists, prison abolitionists, police abolitionists for, which are really the same thing. Yeah. Because <laughs> I, I don't know any anybody who believes in the abolition <laughs> yeah. of one who's like, no, no, I'm fine with the other. That's yeah. fine. <laughs> how would that work? That's the that's the mind boggling thing. Is how you would... <laughs> so, you know, there, to me, when I say abolition, mm-hmm. I mean the entire car- carceral system. And mm-hmm. I think pretty much abolition, every abolitionist today means the same thing. But um, you know, I, like abolitionists have been doing this work for, you know, for, for, you know, years, decades, I mean, centuries, if you want to locate it in, in this, this current abolitionist moment movement as an extension of the original abolitionist moment, mm-hmm. uh, movement, but, um, you know, at least for decades, um, and, you know, so many folks, especially, you know, women and, and queer and trans folks of color, you know, holding the nexus of, of this work mm-hmm. and to prepare us for this, this moment. Um, and I think, you know, it's, it's that it's, it's all of that. It's that work of folks who have been doing this for so long. It's the work of, um, you know, especially the, the courageous organizing of black youth who are out in the streets yeah. and saying, you know, not only protesting and saying Black Lives Matter, which is more than enough, but saying defund and abolish the police because we see that this is a system that is irredeemable. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, all of those, I think, have created this reality where, you know, George, the the uh, the protests in the aftermath of George Floyd's execution could have um, you know, sort of called for generalized change. Mm-hmm. But folks said the call is defund the police and abolish the police. Mm-hmm. And it's an ongoing call. And it has fundamentally changed the narrative. And I, you know, I try to remind folks again, when we're talking about a win, the fact that from this moment forward, when folks are talking about the criminal legal system, that there has to be a reckoning with the idea of abolishing the police, abolishing the carceral state. And, you know, whether it's Fox News deriding it as the most ridiculous thing, whether it's Obama flippantly saying, Mm -hmm. you know, people don't like slogans and it puts people off. Obama is talking about a movement around the abolition of police. Mm as a viable movement. He's denigrating it, but he believes that it is a viable movement that has the possibility to succeed. Yeah. I mean, 
a year ago, months ago, yeah. I would have never believed that the mainstream would be having conversations about the abolition of police as a possibility yeah. and, and mobilizing against it because it was, it was and is such a real possibility. Yeah. And I, I think to me, that's the yes and, right? It took decades or centuries for us to get here and it happened overnight. And, you know, again, everyone who has been organizing on every single level, especially the courageous folks who are out in the street and and Black people and Black youth Mm -hmm. have pulled the future that we dream of into the present and are doing that over and over again. And all of those things are absolutely true at the same moment. Yeah. Yeah, there's a like on on a on a obviously much smaller scale but sometimes i think about the fact that like that there are people who are trying to stop me helps me realize like oh maybe i'm not wasting my time like mm-hmm. um you know i have like my own little personal like fan club of neo confederates who like uh trying to dox me and send me information about my family or whatever right and i'm like oh okay like maybe i think i'm kind of not fucking doing anything i think i'm a fucking cheerleader they're like you're the leader of antifa and i'm like i'm a i'm a cheerleader for antifa i'm here with my big foam hand you know <laughs> like um and it's a foam fist yeah totally <laughs> um oh my god i need to i've looked into more than once how to get foam hands made and i haven't come up with an ethical way to do it yet um besides like just physically making them myself out of dunster foam or whatever but but it is worth it it is worth thinking about how there's so much pushback on abolish the police and you wouldn't have to have had i'm just saying this shit that you already said but you wouldn't have had to bother talking shit on it if you were the establishment 2 years ago you know like no i mean you wouldn't even acknowledge it was an option right? yeah like that i mean i think that's the thing is it's important to recognize the fact that defund the police and abolish the police is anything happening in the mainstream is because of the incredible organizing work um, of so many different people and movements. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, I mean, I think I always think about, you know, the, the media after the Vietnam war and how, you know, the, the decision was made to not show war at all, because even if you're showing the Vietnam war and saying, look at our courageous soldiers fighting for us. Mm-hmm. The horror and the trauma of that visual overrides anything that you say. There is no way that people watch that. And, you know, that yeah. as a, as a whole, yeah. we don't say this has to stop. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the, the decision then becomes made, like don't even show it so that, you know, I mean, I remember having students that I was teaching who were like, wait, we're at war around the Iraq war. Like they had no idea Uh that we were (laughs) like, you know, in multiple wars. And I, I was like, I, I understand, but that is, you know, just mind boggling. And so, you know, I think that it's important to recognize that one of the ways that the system is so, you know, adaptive is not necessarily to, you know, to publicly hold up and vilify if it doesn't have to, it just erases and says that's not an option. It doesn't exist. It's an impossibility. Mm-hmm. It controls our, our imagination to the point where we're like, it's not possible. And so the fact that that this society as a whole is having to contend with this is because of, of us and, 
you know, and more than people who have been in the streets, mm -hmm. uh, much more than me, um, pushing this and saying, like, you have to recognize this as a possibility um, and making it an impossibility to do anything else. Yeah. <laughs> I keep just being like, I just want to think about that. <laughs> um, <it's, laughs> I also want to, and, and it's funny because, you know, uh, I'm sure people say this to you all the time, but it's like the, I think that the work that you've done, at least that I've been exposed to is, is incredibly important. And I mean, both of us have also during fiction panels been like, yeah, this is cool, but check out those people who are actually getting shit done. Um, but I, I, but I do think that, um, I don't know. I, I've found the work that you do to be incredibly useful. Um, but, um, appreciate that. And I, yeah, I think it's important to recognize that in movements, we all have roles to play and that we can play a multiplicity of roles at the same time. Yeah. And that's important. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, especially the, you know, another important tactic is, is dividing us and is vilifying part of our movements and is, you know, isolating mm -hmm. it and saying, you know, these people who are out in the streets, these folks who are engaged in these kinds of, you know, direct action tactics, you know, you have to denounce them and then, you know, you'll then mainstream America, which is always white people mm -hmm. will love you. Um, <laughs> and I think it's, it's incredibly important to not only challenge that, but to recenter um, in, you know, as, as you said, as we, we both have in saying, you know, this like work happens on all level and folks who are out in the street, putting their bodies on the line every mm -hmm. day, like those folks are the, the heart of these, of yeah. these movements. And you know, we may disagree on tactics and strategies, but we have a common vision. And so we'll work it out amongst ourselves, but we will not let you rip the beating heart out of our chest and tell us that it's for our own good. Yeah. And that's the frame reasserting itself, right? When someone mm -hmm. says like, oh, no, 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 no. You know, this, this stuff goes too far clearly because it's not within the existing frame you must come back to the existing frame. You could be at the far left of the existing frame, which is somewhere right of center, but you know, um, damn. All right. Is there anything I haven't asked you that I probably should have asked you about <laughs> envisioning our future? Um, about, well, yeah, I mean, that's that, cause that's the core of it, right? Uh, the core of the question that I'm trying to ask you about today is like the, the usefulness of um, envisioning alternatives. And you've, you've certainly, covered that well but is there something that i'm i'm missing that i should have been asking you i i mean i you know i i very much enjoyed this <laughs> made more pop culture references that I have <laughs> um, but you know i mean i think for me it is just important to recognize that um because I, I feel like sometimes when I talk about this, especially I think with people who are maybe newer to thinking about it, because mm -hmm. I think a lot of the folks I talk to who are already involved in movement work, it just feels empowering to think about the future as ours to shape and mm -hmm. that, you know, we can, we anything we can imagine, we can build. And folks are like, whoa, I, I know that this work has been the most empowering work for me. Um, and it, I use it to constantly remind myself again, like the limitations are being imposed upon me. They don't, they're, they don't exist. And mm -hmm. if we engage collectively, you know, we can build anything. Um, but I think, you know, maybe for, for folks who are new to it, it's, 
I've gotten the feedback. It feels overwhelming to people. Mm -hmm. And they're like, this seems like a lot. (laughs) You want me to do a lot. (laughs) And I, you know, I think it's important to just, you know, recognize again, that's why we, we engage collectively. And that's why it's, you know, it's, we are part of a movement because Mm -hmm. we don't all have to do everything. Mm -hmm. And Again, for me, I I really often think about it as like, how do we pull the futures we want into the present? And that can happen in a movement and that can happen, you know, over a weekend conference and Mm -hmm. that can happen in a conversation with a friend and, and, and more, it can happen in so many different ways. How do we, so to me, it's, you know, it's us pulling those futures into the present and living the futures that we want. And we can do that over and over again. So then we don't have to be so concerned with holding them in the present. Mm-hmm. Obviously our goal is for the, the present to look much more like the futures we dream of. But if we know that, you know, okay, we had this uh, incredible weekend conference where we really like built a community like we want. And it's sad that it's, you know, now that weekend's over, but we now are empowered and know every single one of us knows it's a possibility for us to do that again yeah. and to do it in a conference and in every other aspect of our lives. And so really, again, for me, just thinking about those moments as practice, mm-hmm. um, like we're, we're practicing for the utopia that we'll, we will always be building and we get to continually reimagine ourselves and this collective project in whatever way we want to. Yeah. I always feel empowered by that. Yeah. I like one of the things I've been thinking about with this year is I've been thinking about how um, whatever else happens, we now have a generation of people, multiple generations of people who have like tasted freedom because when you, when you engage in, in direct action in the streets and you win like little tactical things like watching the police retreat you don't forget watching the police retreat even when like the frame comes back in and tells you this is now my new frame is thinking about frames um (laughs) but even when the frame comes back and tells you back in to you know go and work your job and you know um whatever you're you're still going to remember the time that cops ran away from you right and like yeah that Okay, and then the other thing that sorry, I just like I, I keep taking all these notes about everything you're saying. Um, early, much earlier on, when you were talking shit on hierarchy, you also talk shit on dichotomy, and I really liked the tying of those things, two things together as like things to talk shit on. Um, I mean, obviously they can have you know purposes, whatever. But um, I love talking shit on dichotomies; is one of my favorite things. And one of the things that you're also talking about about um, doing remembering that this is a, a movement. And it, my main dichotomy that I love talking shit on is the individual in the community. Um, I love talking shit on when, when people are like, oh, well, you know, getting prepared means it's an individualistic thing versus like engaging in movement struggle is like a, you know, collective thing or whatever. And it all comes, it's all, sorry. Um, So, and then one of the things you're talking about, right. Um, I had this, I was, I was realizing the other day, I was thinking about how, when I was like a, a baby, you know, baby anarchist or whatever, people would talk about like, well, one person is in, is in prison. No one is free. And it didn't, I, I was like, Oh, okay. Yeah. That makes sense. I guess. Or whatever. Right. 
I just assumed it was like, ah, yes, this is a lesson about how solidarity is important and how we should like, you know, always have solidarity with, with different people. And then, but it's also just selfishly true. And this is something that maybe is like really obvious and it's maybe as obvious to the people who coined the phrase and use the phrase. But like, if someone is in prison, I'm not free because I could be that person. Now, I, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm white, which helps me a lot. Um, I have other things that don't help me, right? But like, I could still, if I step out of line, go to prison, which means I'm not free. And in order to live a free life, I then have to kind of put my shit on the line to try and make sure that other people are free so that I can be free. And I, I just love how it like, I don't know. I love how it like intertwines. I, I love how prison abolition intertwines the individual and the community because it's just, it's, it's like, um, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have a rousing yeah, I mean, conclusion I think, to that. I think that that is such an important dichotomy to break down. And, you know, I feel like, you know, we've tried to do that with, with especially the workshops that we created for Octavia's brood. We've, you know, created a number of workshops Myself, my co-editor, Adrian, and especially mm -hmm. Morgan Phillips, who is uh, an amazing trainer and organizer who's, who has a story in the collection. Uh, and we've created a number of workshops that really work on balancing space for the individual and our individual creativity and brilliance within the collective and recognizing, you know, there is no dichotomy, that there is space for our individual brilliance and creativity. And that makes our collective stronger as, as a whole. And, you know, I, I actually had a, a, an amazing writing experience recently. Um, I was part of this new anthology that came out in August um, called Memories of Abolition Day, mm -hmm. put out by Wakanda Dream Lab and Policy Link. And they brought together a group of, uh, I think there were 10 or 12 of us Black creatives to imagine a post-apocalyptic, or not post-apocalyptic, sorry, mm -hmm. a post-abolition uh, uh, world, mm -hmm. and then create stories in it. So we collectively came up with this world, and then we individually wrote stories in it, which is the same process that um, Morgan and I created for the, um, the visionary fiction workshop, the first one that was ever done. And it's, it's an amazing process. And I never had the chance, actually, to go through the process as a participant. I I facilitated it countless times, but it was amazing to go through as a participant because you're collectively building this world. And so there's so much space for your individual brilliance because you can bring whatever's coming to your mind. Mm -hmm. And it also feels so freeing because you don't have to have the whole answer. Yeah. Like I remember uh -huh. saying, you know, Oh, well, what if, you know, there was this, thing that allows us to experience, you know, things in the past, but I don't quite know what that means. And then someone else, you know, was just like, what about this? Boom. And came up with something that was so much more brilliant than what I could have come up with on my own. And I was just like, oh my God. And then someone else was like, boom, I was thinking about this and we're just pulling this together. Mm -hmm. And so we created this world that was you know, so much more than the sum of its individual parts. And then we went and we individually created within that collective world. 
And it was just beautiful because people wrote poems. Someone wrote a choose your own adventure story. <laughs> there was an artist who illustrated so beautifully all of our work. Um, and our stories ended up spanning 500 years mm-hmm. of, of post-abolition ab- uh, world, recognizing fundamentally abolition as a practice. And so while most of the stories came after what we called abolition day, the day the last prison closed, Mm -hmm. the majority of them were for the hundreds of years after that, because like communities kept refining the process and saying, we closed the last prison, yay, oh, but we wanna do better. And then they did better. And then they were like, oh, there's these things we didn't even think about before. We Mm -hmm. wanna do better. And then they did better. And there were always, conflicts and issues because humans are messy (laughs) um but you know it was it was just beautiful and so for me i i am very much holding on to that experience of just feeling so held especially you know we were working on this but you know i think they reached out in in may and we were working on this in june and Mm -hmm. so it's in the middle of everything of the multiple pandemics of you know, the uprising and the courageous organizing of being terrified and, and mm-hmm. so proud of, of folks out in the streets and, and uh, all of the work everyone is doing on so many levels to have this space where we came together as Black creatives and we're like, let's concretely imagine possibilities and try and share that with folks um, and see, you know, what, what we put out in the world, not as the definitive answer, but just as hopefully uh, something to spark ideas in other folks. And so, you know, for me, I very much hold on to that as, as a reminder that almost every dichotomy is false. Mm -hmm. And the reality is, is that the individual and community dichotomy is exceptionally dangerous um, because it keeps us from being able to be both our best selves and our best communities. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, watching like people being like, oh, well, you hate the United States. Be like, yeah, and be like, therefore, you love like Stalinism. And you're like, that doesn't follow. Why would that follow? Like, come on, it, 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 to tie things into like failure of imagination, you have this idea where it's like we've been told our whole lives that the only options are, you know, um, state capitalism i mean sorry capitalism and then like state communism you know and 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 the both of those ideologies the at their like as represented by the united states and soviet union at least are that dichotomy they're drawn out and made so particular like oh the individual fucks over the community or like you know the individual is completely subservient i mean obviously that source on the life under communism or whatever but but the ideological core of it being like the individual is like subservient to the society and i just hate it because then it just makes people pick a side and i'm like that's the dumbest side to pick you could i don't know i sorry i could go on about it. i just fucking hate it 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 does so much damage to the world and it it also closes off everything to being like learning from any other culture other than these two shitty ones um okay well we've i've been stealing your time long enough um where can people find your work or engage with what you've done or, um, you know? Sure. Yeah. So I, I have a website, Walida.com, mm-hmm. W-A-L-I-D-A-H.com. And then 
Um, my two books are with AK Press, mm -hmm. um, so folks can check it out there or your independent local books bookseller. Um, yeah. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, just check out Walida's work. It's You won't be disappointed. I mean, I don't know, maybe you will, maybe you hate this kind of stuff. In which case, I'm impressed that you made it this far. But, you know, you should you should check out Walida's stuff. And if you want to support the show, you can do so by telling people about it. First and foremost, that is the, the main way that people hear about this show is you tell people about it. And then also you can tell computers about it by liking and subscribing and rating and reviewing and doing all of those things that like control the algorithms. And all those things are great. There's nothing wrong with the society based on algorithms. And you can also support me more directly by supporting me on, on Patreon. My Patreon is patreon.com slash Margaret Kiljoy. But as I say every episode, if you live off of less money than I do, if you live off of, you know, it's funny, I say this every episode, you think I'd know how to say it by now. If you live off of less money than I make on Patreon, then don't give me money on Patreon. Um, I, I don't need it as much as you do. And you can instead, if you want access to the stuff on my Patreon, the zines, the music, and the me rambling about my life, uh, if you don't get enough of that from this podcast, um, you can just... Uh, you can message me on whatever platform and I will give you access to all the content that is hidden behind my paywall for free. But in particular, I would like to thank Chris and Nora and Haas the dog, Kirk, Willow, Natalie, Sam, Christopher, Shane, the compound and cat Jay. Just thank you all so much for, for the support. It means an awful lot to me. And sorry about the two weeks of absence where I didn't record a podcast. I have no excuses besides the large generalized excuse that we're all living in right now. But I do have um, a bunch of episodes, one already recorded and several all lined up. And I think you won't be disappointed with them. Thanks so much. And I hope you're doing as well as you can. Mm -hmm.